John chapter 10, verse 19. It says, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, and many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others said, uh, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And at this time, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you, um, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, we kind of start off our time. Uh, there was a division. This division between the religious leaders and Jesus and Jesus' followers is starting to build. We're going to see through the rest of the book um, that there is this, this conflict is becoming more and more common with Jesus. And so we, we kind of fast forward in our story. It says that it was the Feast of Dedication. So last week, um, it was kind of towards the end of Feast of Tabernacles. And so about three months have passed between what we talked about last week and what we're talking about this week. But we can see that the theme is still the same. He's still talking about his flock. He's still talking about being sheep. He's still using the same analogies. And so there's this division that's happening, but time is still passing and it's not going away. Little nuances that John wrote that I really like is that he tells us the Feast of Dedication, which is also known as Hanukkah in kind of modern festivals. So it's wintertime, and he says that. It's winter. Um, he's not just talking about a season here, but literally the word means wintering. Like it was probably raining, it was cold, and it makes sense because Jesus was walking in the colonnade of Solomon. It was a, a kind of a colonnade area that was surrounded the larger courtyard. So you almost get this picture as you're kind of entering into this story of it's raining and everybody kind of runs to get undercover. And so all the people are in this like colonnade area. And it says that the Jews gathered around Jesus. It's almost like there's so many people, they kind of surrounded him. And they said, will you just tell us plainly if you're the Messiah? Which is, I think, funny because Jesus has been very, very explicit, especially in recent conversations. He's saying things like, before Abraham was, I am, right? Like talking, like making himself timeless outside of time and He's making all these statements. And so he goes on and he says, listen, I've been working. My father's been working. I've been doing these works and you do not believe me, essentially. Like you're, you're, not, um, you're not seeing it. I've told you, I've showed you, and you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. The, the, the reality is, and we've talked about this many times and it's gonna continue, is that the Jewish religious leaders had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like, function like, be like, they had conjured up what this was supposed to be according to their, their own understanding of Scripture as well as tradition. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he is very different than any of their expectations. And because he did not fit into their mold, they rejected him. So they're asking, not are you the Messiah, because Jesus has answered that very explicitly, but are 
Why are, like, are you going to be the Messiah we've waited for, which is this Messiah that was going to come and conquer Rome and free Israel and allow them to have their nation and who's going to rule and reign for a thousand years? Like, that is what they're expecting when they ask this question. And Jesus, again, I love that he answers their question, but he doesn't give them the satisfaction of answering it the way they want. Because Jesus, he, the guy, I mean, he had, a, he had a sense of humor I really appreciate. And then he goes on and he starts talking about his sheep. He said, you're not part of my flock. That's why you don't get it. He goes, listen, my sheep hear my voice. If you missed last week, it's on, we put it on the podcast so you can listen to it. It was this beautiful time of talking about how sheep hear their shepherd's voice. They follow because they listen to their voice. They don't necessarily see the shepherd, but they listen. And they become familiar with, and how we talk about for us, that's as we're in God's word and as we're learning of him and getting to know him, we become familiar with his voice, and that is how we're able to follow him. And he says, I know my sheep. We also talked about that last week, but this idea of the word know there is this Greek word called gnosko, and it means to know by experience, not just knowledge. It's more of an intimate, more of a relational knowledge, essentially, or, or knowing or experiencing somebody. And last week, we talked about how his sheep know their shepherd and how we get to know him. But what's beautiful also is that our shepherd knows us. He knows you. Like, he doesn't know about you. It's not that he just knows your name, but he knows you. Like, knows you, knows you. And he also then continues on. He says, and because of that, my sheep follow me. Now, I grew up in a church culture that um, was very, we're going to get into it more in a little bit, but this verse I always read, like, if you're his shepherd, you better follow him, okay? That wasn't communicated, like, explicitly, but that's what I heard, Okay? Oh, really, you're not following you? Maybe you're not a sheep, right? Now, that sounds really kind of harsh, but that's kind of how I always read this, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, my sheep follow me. Like, it, 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 sheep follow their shepherd. Like, it's not that if you better, you better follow the shepherd. It's like, no, as you become one of, part of his flock, you will naturally follow. Now, what that doesn't mean it's easy, like second nature, right? We know that following Jesus isn't always easy, Sometimes we wander. Sometimes we get lost. But at the end of the day, followers of Jesus want to follow Jesus. It's still our desire. We may not be good at it. We may be really bad at following Jesus sometimes. We may be struggling. We may have some major jacked up stuff in our life. But at the end of the day, we're like, I really want Jesus. Like, I want to follow him. That's what he's saying. My sheep follow me. They follow me. And then he says, I give them eternal life. Let's talk about eternal life. Briefly, eternal life. Now, one of the things we ought to keep in mind is that God is eternal, right? He exists outside of time and space. God doesn't have a beginning or an end. He's eternal. And so eternal life, at the end of the day, is entering into that space with God, right? I mean, so there's a few things we can learn about eternal life. One, we see from the text here, is that eternal life is a gift. It's given, Okay? It's not earned, it's not deserved, it's given. A, a second thing about eternal life we see is that it is never-ending life. And it's the moment we trust Jesus, it's like we are transferred into this, this space, it's where God, where God is at, ultimately. That we have life eternally. It begins right now, though. It's not, I think so often eternal life, is the mindset often is, well, when I die, I get to experience this. Like, no, the life begins now. God makes his home in us right now. 
Another thing about eternal life, I think, that is good to clarify is that often people are like, well, when I, like, what is it going to be like? Am I going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp? Like, is this going to be a big party? Like, what's heaven, man? What's eternal life? And I think Jesus sums up eternal life in a really simple way in John chapter 17, verse 3. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life begins now because now is when we begin to know God and be known by God, right? And it continues on throughout this life. And one day when we die, we are going to be with him and we will know him for all of eternity and he'll know us. Like it's the relationship continues and becomes bigger and better. But it's not like this is life and then something changes after we die. It's it just that it continues on to greater degree. Um, eternal life also is being with God. Right now, Romans chapter 8, 11 says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So as we trust Jesus, as we believe what he said and trust him with our life, his Holy Spirit comes, God's Holy Spirit comes and lives within us and we begin to dwell with God even on this earth. There's this moment, this relationship begins. And I get it's limited, and I get that it's, it's, it's not the same as being in his presence, but that is this life that we start to experiencing is a life with God now. And of course, one day, we're gonna, we're gonna die and we're gonna move on, and that being with God continues. Jesus' desire towards the end, we, we're gonna get into it, who knows when, in a few months from now, when Jesus is having his prayer in the garden, um, he prays this prayer. He said, Father, I desire that they, speaking of his disciples and followers, will all, um, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am and see my glory that, they, uh, that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundations of the world. And in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus was talking to the thief on the cross, he said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay. So the idea is that life continues on with God, right? So right, we have the Spirit living with, with, within us, but there comes a point when we die that we're going to be with him, living in his space, right? And that's God's desire, that's Jesus' desire, that we're with him. So eternal life is being with God for all of eternity. And that's what Jesus promised the thief on the cross. And so it's just important as we're talking about this, I wanted just to clarify so that we can kind of say, like, this is what I mean, this is what I see through Scripture, so we're kind of all on the same page. And then Jesus continues on. He's like, my sheep will never perish. Now, what he's talking about, obviously when we die, there's an aspect of our bodies dying and perishing, but who we are is far more than these bodies. I think that we all can agree on that. That there's more to life than just the physical. And so when he's saying my sheep will not perish, he wasn't saying that his followers weren't going to die, which a lot of people at that time thought he was saying. He was saying that they're not going to perish. They're not going to be lost for like that. They're going to continue on. And one day, the Bible says that our bodies will be resurrected and we will be with God in this kind of hybrid physical form, new, new bodies, kind of an idea. But then he goes on and he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This is something we're going to talk a little bit more in a little bit, but I just want to clarify a couple things. No organization, no person can take you out of Jesus' hand, okay? They may say, you're not good enough, you're terrible, but at the end of the day, if you're trusting Jesus, you're in his hand. Like, no organ- nobody can tell you that you're going to 
you're done, that you're going to hell, that you're not. Like, that's not our place. And I think it's important to clarify that because I've had people that say, like, well, my church has told me this. It's like, no, like, well, do you love, do you trust Jesus? Like, where are you at with Jesus? Because at the end of the day, that is whether or not we're part of the flock or not. And then he goes on and kind of talks about how the Father has given him all these sheep and that no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's just kind of a cool picture that when we're with God, like, it's almost like, you know, like Father's hand, Son's hand. Like we're safe. We're secure. And there's something very calming about that, and we'll get into a little bit more of that in a little bit. And then he says, I and the Father are one. Pretty bold statement. What he's not saying is that I and the Father are the same person right? Um, during, uh, later on, after the church, uh, Jesus went back to heaven and, and the church going on, there came this idea that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were the same person, and they just manifested in different forms. And a lot of people understand the Trinity that way. That's not what he's saying. There's three persons, right? But they're all, he's saying we are the one, same substance, same essence. We are God, he is, I am, I and the Father are one. Father's me and I am the Father, Right? I'm God manifest in the flesh, but I am my own person. We even see that in Genesis chapter 1 where it says that the Spirit was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light, right? So we have the, the Father, we have saying God said, the Word of God, we have the Spirit over the waters, like all playing different roles, but three very distinct existing at the exact same moment. So he made himself out to be God in this statement though. Jesus was claiming to be God and the... And the um, the religious leaders picked up on it, so they picked up stones to execute Jesus. So they knew what he was claiming. And then something very interesting happens in chapter uh, 10, verse 31. It says, And the Jews picked up stones against to stone him, and Jesus said to him, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered and said, It's not for the good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus said to him, that's not written in your law. Is it not written in your law that I said that you are gods? If I called them gods whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I am doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. So this is a text that's kind of taken out a lot of uh, different contexts, but essentially what happened is, is Jesus said this. They picked up stones. He's like, why are you going to stone me? What good works? And they're like, you made yourself to be God. And he goes, what Jesus is saying is like, first off, that's not even blasphemy because in Scripture earlier on in Psalms chapter uh, 92 or 82, um, he's, he called the leaders gods, that they were functioning as gods. Essentially, they had people's life and death in their hand. And also in Exodus 21 and 22, it was also God referred to the judges playing a role as God. And you have to keep in mind, in this culture especially, leaders always claim to be God. And, but even bigger than that, God was saying, like, you're in the place of God for these people, that you are determining right and wrong, life and death, judgment. And so it was like little g, it's, in Elohim was the word that was used. It wasn't specifically talking about deity. It was just talking about a role. And so Jesus is saying, listen, in our own law, this has been said. That is not grounds for me to be put to death. 
like, and then I love Jesus' follow-up. He goes, also, the Father is in me and I am in him. Like, just like he, he again then reiterates what he was claiming. He didn't say, no, you got me all wrong. I didn't say that. He follows back up and doubles down to the point where they go, they, they're going to wanting to arrest him and put him in jail again, and it says that he slips out and kind of gets away. The point in all of this is Jesus is showing that even in your own law, in your own tradition, you're making claims against me that isn't even right, that it's not even illegal for me to say this, but I am who I claim to be. I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, and I am the Father, that we are one essence. We are, I am, essentially, he's making a claim to be God. And this will go into our story of the gospel that I'm going to look at in a second. This is the, the last thing about our story I'm going to just comment on, though, is that Jesus is more than they could have dreamed of. He is better than they could have imagined. He is better than they could have constructed. And because he did not fit into what they've been told through their traditions, what they constructed through their ideas, they rejected him. And I see that even to this day. But let's get into a couple of these ideas. Let's look at the gospel and being saved. In this text, the idea of not being able to be snatched out of hand, one of the things I get so much and I hear so much is this, these questions. What if I sin too much? Am I really saved? How do I know? Can I lose my salvation? Like, and those are deep, deep questions that I hear a lot. And I think I'd be amiss to like not mention these things. I want to talk about why those questions come up. I think everybody in this room can agree that we don't function the way that we always want to. There's things sometimes in our heart that's gross and nasty. There's stuff that comes out that's not great. And sometimes we can hide it and sometimes we can't. And I think for us to be like, no, everything's awesome, I'm fine, everything's great, I don't struggle, I don't think anybody here, when they're honest, is going to say that. But the reason why it gets to this point of almost despair we're going, I, like, I can't get this right. Am I even a follower of Jesus? Am I even a Christian? Like, why? Am I the only one? Everybody else seems to be killing it right now. Am I the only one that can't do this? Unfortunately, we live in a culture where we can't ask that blatantly, right? We have to just stuff it down and hope nobody sees it. Because we, start, we ask that question, we realize, oh, you too? You too feel that way? You also struggle? You also aren't always nailing it? Like, but this is what, at the end of the day, I think that this comes up. It, I think at the end of the day, it rises from an understanding of the gospel and salvation. And this is what I mean, and I've talked about this before. I grew up in a culture where the gospel was only communicated as Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so you get to go to heaven when you die. That is part of the gospel. That's not, I'm not saying that's not true, okay? But what happens when that's all we say is that we see that it takes care of our past, right? This idea, you're a sinner, you need to be forgiven. So I'm like, the, 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 that part of the gospel, it takes care of my past. My sins are forgiven. Whew, I'm forgiven. And it takes care of my future. I get to go to heaven when I die. But what often happens when that's only the part of the gospel that's communicated is that it leaves this gaping hole for right now. 
And what ends up filling that hole is this idea of you, now is you need to learn all this stuff so that you can learn to sin less. I've heard that from the pulpit multiple times. The whole reason God's given us his word and all this is so we can learn to sin less. Do I want us to sin less? Absolutely. Do I want to sin less? Absolutely. But that isn't the point of the gospel. Stick with me on this. At the end of the day, it takes care of our past, it takes care of our future, but it leaves this gaping hole. And what ends up happening if we're just trying to sin less is that we become very, very self-focused. Like, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? I've been screwing up too much. Has God mad at me? Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Or I am nailing it right now. I'm killing it. Of course, God is going to listen to me today. I woke up early. I read my Bible. I prayed. I gave some money to this homeless guy I saw. Like, I'm doing really, really well, right? Like, what happens is my identity becomes fixed in my performance. Either I'm my sin, and I, that comes with shame and guilt and hiding, and like, I can't do this, and I can't even look up, and I don't even want to go in prayer because why would God listen to me today? I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. Or I'm my, my success. I'm, I walk in. I'm like, God, today's the day I'm going to ask all these things because you're going to bless me because I'm killing it. You walk around other people like, you should look to me. I know what's up, you know? Comparison. Here's the thing. We're comparing ourselves to people all the time, right? But when we're functioning in this space of a sin-centric gospel, just stick with me on this, we look at ourselves a lot and we look at others a lot. And where are we not looking? Jesus. We are so concerned with ourselves and people around us. And what ends up happening is it is crippling. It's crippling because I either am I sin or am I successful. So I'm, I'm going back and forth. It's this constant movement between failure and success. And, and what ends up happening is that I, I function. I think if you talk to any like, person that would call themselves a Christian for any significant period of time, they would say, of course I'm saved by grace. But functionally, they, function, but functionally they, they operate as though they are loved, accepted um, by God through their performance. When I am doing well, God accepts me and loves me, and, and when I'm not doing well, God rejects me. God's not happy. God's disappointed me. Like, you can't do this? That's the mindset, right? And so I think at the end of the day, that is a miserable way to live. I'm just going to say it. That is miserable. Because here's the reality. Anybody that's been following Jesus for any, any bit of time, guess what? You're, the more closer you get to the light, the more our flaws are seen. I mean, just be real. Like, I started following Jesus probably 20-some years ago. There was like 10 years in, suddenly like this, something in my heart, like, was start, I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, how long has that been there? That's like the whole time. I'm like, really? In God's timing, he chose to bring to light things that I had been, idols I'd had, lies I'd believed, sin. And guess what? He's going to keep doing it. There's stuff that's still coming out. And I'm like, that's been there the whole time, man? It's like, yeah, 
I'm using you, I'm bringing you in, not because you're perfect, but because I'm working in you. And I think that God's grace is that he doesn't expose all the garbage that lives in our heart because we would be overwhelmed. I would say that when we enter into God's presence, it says throughout scripture that people die, I think that's what kills them. They come in, they see all of their flaws, and it's like instant, like, oh my gosh. It's die, right? If I'm constantly looking at all the stuff I'm screwing up, the longer you walk with Jesus, it's gonna get worse. You're gonna see some pretty gross stuff. You're gonna see motives. You're gonna start going into the motive rabbit trail. If you really wanna get depressed, start looking at your motives. You can do a lot of really good things for poor reasons. And if the only way I'm acceptable to God is because of my performance, that gets really dark really fast. Thankfully, I'm loved and accepted by the Father because of Jesus, right? He saved us by grace. And so this gets into the gospel. I've talked a lot about it. I'm going to keep talking about it till the day I die. I'm going to give you the brief overview. At the end of the day, the gospel is a story about God redeeming the world. It is a gospel that is redeeming the world through Jesus, and it starts all the way at the beginning, that God created the world and everyone in it. He created human beings, and he made human beings to be image bearers of himself, that we were to image God to the rest of the world. And we were defined by God as very good. God defined who we were. We were created beings, made in his image, that he chose to enter into a relationship with, giving us the task of communicating and representing and reflecting him to the rest of this world. The world was perfect. There was no pain, suffering, or anything else. And that was God's intention for all of eternity. But the problem was is that human beings rebelled against God's rule. They wanted to define good and evil on their own terms, and in doing that, sin, death, distortion, brokenness entered into the world. But God was not done with humanity. God pursued humanity. Generation after generation, he pursued them and loved them, and generation after generation, human beings kept failing and rebelling and defining good and evil on their own and being a curse to the world, not a blessing. And God in his goodness and glory finally came into the world as a human being. He entered into the brokenness of this world in the form of Jesus. And he became this physical being. Jesus is the true image of God. He performed everything necessary that God requires of us. Perfectly imaging God. And Jesus died on the cross paying the penalty for our rebellion and our sin against God and all the consequences of breaking his world. The Bible tells us that Jesus became sin and bore our shame on the cross and that Jesus was separated from God so that we could be brought near. But he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. The reason why the gospel is good news is because it's about God's love, not our love. The gospel is good news because it's about God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness or faithlessness. It's about God's performance, not our performance. The gospel is good news because it's about God's work, not our works. The gospel is good news because it's about a good God. And when we make the gospel about our works and our holiness, we turn it into bad news. So, well, then what does it mean? How do I get this? What does it mean to be saved? Okay? Saved, at the end of the day, is the idea of believing and trusting in Jesus. Who he said he was and what he's done. At the end of the day, that is 
a, a salvific work. That's how we come in. It's this faith moment of trusting God at its core. John 3.16, we see it on all the billboards. For God so loved the world that he gave his, his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5.24, I love this one. He says, truly I say to you that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, not will have, has, present tense, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. And then also 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That last verse is humongous. The sin of the world was placed on Jesus. He made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that Jesus' righteousness was transferred to us. So when God sees us, he sees his son, those that have trusted in him. Our sin that we seem to only see has been placed on Christ and that was sacrificed on the cross. We are loved and accepted by the Father because of Jesus. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. It changes everything. So now I'm forgiven because Jesus, he took my shame and my sin. I don't have to hide. I am accepted by the Father because of Jesus' perfect works and obedience has been credited to me. I have a new identity. I'm no longer my sin. I'm no longer my success. But I'm forgiven and adopted and accepted by the Father. I'm a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, the new has come. We're new. We're reborn. So I'm no longer my sin. I'm no longer my success. I am now a son and daughter of the king through adoption. It's beautiful. This changes how we see the world. And it helps with the now right? So I'm no longer this. I'm no longer this. Now, how do I function? I function in relationship with God. And how we live this life is we're reminding each other and we're being reminded through God's word of all of these beautiful truths that I've been saying. And if anyone here might, might experience you're like, it warms our heart. Like, man, I want, like, it changes. I want to get out and and help. I want to do these things. I want to obey. It's not because if I don't, I'm rejected and God's going to condemn me. It's because, man, you've done all this for me. Why wouldn't I want to do this? It changes everything. We need each other. We need God's word. We need these times to be reminded that I'm loved by God. That forms me. I start there. That when I know that I'm loved unconditionally by the Father because of everything that Jesus has done, that has a formative effect on me. It allows me to, I don't have to perform. I don't have to do for God to love me anymore. And there's nothing I can do for him to love me any less. It changes then also, that I'm re, as I'm reminded, knowing that my sin is been forgiven, has been forgiven, completely forgiven. Not just my past stuff, but my future stuff. All sin, it's paid for. That doesn't mean I get to go do whatever I want. I've actually never met a follower of Jesus that's like, cool, I can go do whatever. Never say that. I've never talked, I mean, I never met that person, ever. But there's something where I can go, 
My sin has been paid for. I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to punish myself. I don't have to work it off. I am forgiven 100% by God. That space is so freeing. And for me, that produces more holiness and more of a desire to obey and follow Jesus than any amount of, if you don't do this, God's going to be mad at you. If you don't do this, you're going to hell. If you don't do this, I've never seen that work. God doesn't want us to follow him out of fear. He wants us to follow him because we love him. We're responding to the fact that he loves us. And now, because I'm forgiven, because I'm loved, I can deal and work through my own brokenness and sin. If I'm struggling with something, God doesn't want that just to be like, whatever, it doesn't matter. No, God's working that out. The fact that it's even coming to your mind right now shows that I'm going to deal with that, but in a very different way than what you're used to. We can deal with it. We can confess it to others. We can bring people in because I am forgiven and they're forgiven because I'm not my sin. My identity isn't fixed. I can be vulnerable and I can be real with people I trust and say, I'm not doing well here. I'm struggling in this area and my identity doesn't change. My worthiness doesn't change. My acceptance doesn't change. God's love doesn't change. And I can work through it and get help and have other people walk with me. I'm fully accepted by God, and so I don't have to prove myself to that person or to God. I don't have to prove myself to God. Jesus has proven himself far more than I could ever prove myself. My acceptance and love by God is fixed in Jesus. So, and as God loves me, and I remember him forgiven, and my acceptance, all this, that's what happens for me and what many people I talk to. I want to respond, by the way, which is worship, by loving him in return. And loving my neighbor. And loving the weird coworker that drives me crazy. Maybe that comes later. But we respond in love. So the whole of Christianity is like, you better love God and love your neighbor. No, no. That is part of it. But you are loved by the Father. He loves you passionately. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows all your struggles and he loves you anyway. And because he loves you, He's inviting you to love him back and love your neighbor. It starts with us knowing who we are and where we're at and all of that. But you might say, well, listen, I mess up a lot. I struggle a lot. Where do I know where I stand? I'm going to close at our time with Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, this is one of the most powerful passages in this whole book of Romans. It's directly in the center, too. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but given him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, it is God who justifies. Well, who is it that condemns? Christ, Jesus, is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famines or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, who wrote this, brought up four questions. They're almost rhetorical. His first one is, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know what's interesting about that question? The only one that could be against us is God. We're the ones that have sinned against him. We're the ones that have rebelled against him. The only one that could be against us is God, and it says that he's not against us because of humans' rebellion and all this stuff, but rather he was against his son on the cross. That's what he says. He's like, he gave us his son. Like, he's so not against us, even though we deserve it, he was against his son on the cross. He poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. Jesus was separated from the Father on the cross for us. And so Paul's going, if God is for us, he's shown it through Jesus. Like, who in the world can be against us? And then he goes on to the second question. Who shall bring a charge against God elect? It's God who justifies or declares not guilty. Here's the thing. The only one that could bring a charge against us is God because we're the ones that sinned against him. God justifies. It's not because he overlooks sin or because God's righteous requirements aren't important or his righteous judgments weren't important. God's righteous requirements were fulfilled, but it was in Jesus, and his righteous judgments occurred on Jesus. So God is fully just. It's not like he's just letting everybody off. Nobody gets off because Jesus, like we are benefiting from Jesus' obedience and Jesus' payment. We are unable to satisfy that. And so God is able to declare us not guilty and not bring a charge against us because he brought it against Jesus. God is not waiting for you to mess up so he can go, you did it again. He is waiting for you to come into his presence and receive mercy and grace to, and to help in time of need, as it says in Hebrews. That's the difference. Because, well, then who can condemn? Jesus was condemned and rose again, and he intercedes for us to this day. God is the only one that can condemn us. And he didn't because he condemned Jesus instead. Romans 1 tells us that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So if you experience life of a lot of condemning and you're a follower of Jesus, that's not God. Now, condemnation and conviction, sometimes they feel the same, right? If we're willingly living in a way that is contrary to how God lays it out, that tugging and that like, man, am I doing all the right thing? That might be God saying, I love you. Like, stop. This is going to destroy you. But condemning is not something that God does. If you remember, I've talked about this before, but conviction, the purpose of conviction by the Holy Spirit is to remind us that we're loved by God and to, bring it, and to remind us to turn to him from our sin. So when you experience conviction, like, ugh, that's God saying, I love you. Like that thing you were going through, that thing you believe would satisfy, that thing that you thought would, would help, like it didn't, and it's not come back to me. Look to me. I love you. Like, it's like the engagement ring, right? I'm loved. Like, I want, I'm committed myself to you, right? Come back. And then lastly, he goes, well, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he lays, lays out 
every situation, every possibility, time, space, matter, all of these things. And he concludes with nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even you. Not even you can separate from God's love for you. If you guys want, you can come back up. We'll get into our second part of music. But let me just throw this out. Like, if that doesn't warm your heart, I don't, I don't know what else can. That the Father of all the world, the creator of the universe, desires to be in relationship with you. He's done everything necessary for you to be in a relationship with him, and he is inviting you in as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up earlier. You don't have to make yourself everything right, make yourself presentable. Come, because he sees you as you are, and he loves you as you are, and his desire is to make you more like his son. His desire is to change you and make you everything that you want to be, essentially. He's forgiven you. He loves you. And all, if you, if you don't know Jesus, and, and that's something you haven't experienced or want to, like, it's, it's not this magical process. It's simply just saying, like, I trust you, Jesus. Like, I want that. Like, forgive me. Like, I want you. Like, I want to follow you. Sometimes it involves, like, Lord, just, I don't even know what to do next. Change me. And, and God's Holy Spirit does this work in you. Ask him about those areas. And for those that are following Jesus, we want to keep coming back and believing and trusting those truths, being reminded of who we are in Jesus, what Jesus has done on our behalf, and from that flowing, the, out of that fullness flowing out in everyday life. So that I'm going to close in prayer. There is communion elements that we